Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, a biopharmaceutical business that is pushing the boundaries of science to deliver new cancer medicines. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anise Chagpar and Stephen Gore. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about lymphedema and cancer with Lewis Friedman. Lou is a physical therapist and a certified lymphedema therapist. Dr. Gore is a professor of internal medicine and hematology at Yale School of Medicine and director of hematologic malignancies at the Yale Cancer Center. Lymphedema. So I know a lot of people know about edema. It's one of, like, everybody worries about their swelling. Um, but I'm not sure that everyone knows what lymphedema is. Can you can you describe that for us? I'd be happy to. Lymph is actually a natural part of the circulation. Um, most people are aware that fluid comes back to the heart by veins, but there's a whole separate system called the lymphatic system that picks up and returns to the heart fluid that uh, the veins don't. And what can happen is the lymph system can be interrupted, whether it's by surgical removal of lymph nodes, uh, radiation and other factors. So that fluid tends to build up in the extremity. So in the case of breast cancer, for example, the lymph nodes in the armpit are taken out. The fluid can build up in the arm, the breast area, chest wall. Uh, even in head and neck cancer, when they take lymph nodes out from surgery, the fluid can actually build up in the facial area, the head and neck. Oh, wow. And I've also seen people who have lymphedema in the legs, right? Correct. So actually, interestingly, worldwide, uh, lymphedema is, called, is caused by a parasite, especially in third world countries, something called filariasis. In this country, it is due to uh, the surgical removal of the lymph nodes. So if someone has had a gynecological cancer and lymph nodes are removed through the uh, inguinal area, the groin, or the stomach, that fluid can also build up in the leg. But not everybody who has lymph nodes removed will have lymphedema, is that right? That's absolutely correct. The lymphatic system actually has a great deal of reserve capacity, so you can slow it down a little bit, and it can still function well. Mm -hmm. And um, maybe we're getting, I'm getting ahead of us a little bit, but are there ways to predict in advance who's going to be at higher risk for developing lymphedema with a particular surgery, or is it just kind of hit or miss? Um, to some extent, it's hit or miss. We do know that in breast cancer, for example, there are high-risk patients. So patients who are uh, overweight, so what we call a body mass index near 30 Mm -hmm. uh, at the time of diagnosis tends to put them at, at risk. And 30 is not that big in our society, really. I mean, I realize it's considered obese, but it's it's not super obese, right? Correct. And there are people that naturally tend up towards that, absolutely. The it, When you start adding into that people who will be having a, uh, a lymph node dissection, in other words, when they're going to take a large amount of lymph nodes out, in addition, certain chemotherapies and the addition of radiation can also increase the risk slightly. Mm. And is there anything that could be done prophylactically in such patients to try to prevent the onset of uh, lymphedema, or is there really nothing you can do ahead of time? A great question. And, and the issue is trying to study that is very difficult because we have numbers. So, for example, we know in the case of breast cancer, someone who's had what's called a sentinel lymph node biopsy, where they're just taking one or two and checking it, and then they don't go further, 
the uh, the numbers there anywhere from zero to three to four percent of those pe- people might get lymphedema. When you start doing a axillary lymph node dissection, and that's where they're taking more lymph nodes, then that percentage can go up to 25, 30%. Hmm. What we have found is best is if we can identify a group, the, the group of high-risk patients, and see them and get a baseline, and then see them periodically, something we call surveillance, so that we're picking up real quickly if they're going to be developing lymphedema and intervening then uh, is the best we have at this point. Gotcha. And how effective uh, are the interventions? I mean, I've in my practice uh, over the years, I, I've certainly seen uh, a number of patients who have really severe lymphedema either in the arm uh, after breast cancer or uh, in the legs, and it's it can be it's both unsightly and disabling for some patients. I mean, this is a really scary stuff for some people. Correct. And what we some of the studies show that the earlier you get it, the better. So if you can get in in breast cancer again, for example, uh, if you can pick it up when the swelling first starts, and a simple intervention, something as a compression garment as well as showing certain exercises and possibly adding manual lymph drainage. But the studies show just adding a compression uh, garment can significantly stop that in its tracks. The Mm. issue with lymphedema is it can be progressive. And what they're finding in newer studies is that there's actually an inflammatory component to it. Initially, it was thought that it was just a blockage and a backup. Now they're finding that the it can almost be a self-perpetuating condition, hmm. and that is one of the reasons it can be very difficult to treat. Hmm. And I guess uh, the lymphatics don't grow back. Is that is that true? I don't know. The lymph nodes will not grow back. The smaller lymph vessels, what we call the initial capillaries, they will grow. It just takes a long time. I see. Uh-huh. So and when you say a compression garment, um, you know, I guess we've all seen compression stockings is what people are most familiar with. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about? So when we look at lymphedema care, uh, we look at something called complete decongestive therapy. So that's four stages. Um, One is a hands-on technique called manual lymph drainage. The other is compression. Then we look at certain exercises and then good skin care. So when we look at the compression piece of this, Depending on where the person is at is how we decide. So if we can get someone initially, yes, it would be something like an elastic compression stocking. If we need additional compression, we do we use something called short-stretch bandaging, which looks like an ACE wrap but is a totally different type of compression that we wrap in a certain way on the extremity, and that helps reduce the amount of lymphedema in the leg, huh. uh, arm or leg. Huh. There is also... Um, uh, you know, the, the vendors in this area have done a nice job. They're continually upgrading the quality of the elastic compression. There's also new products that you can uh, apply with Velcro. And we basically look at elastic and non-elastic compression. So there's many, many different types of compression products that we would use. We always like to individualize that to the person. Mm-hmm. I know patients are often very reluctant in the case of either more conventional edema or lymphedema to use, uh, to put on a compression stocking, for example, their experience has often been very painful or uncomfortable. And so, uh, you know, I've, I've certainly found patients to resist that sometimes. Well, there's a few, there's a few issues there. I have had uh, many people who will go online and order something online. Right. 
it really is advised to have uh, a professional fitter. So take the, the measurements that you need and then get into a, an appropriate compression. Uh, yes, they can be difficult to put on, especially for the leg where you might use higher compression. They can be very challenging to put on. If someone has um, hand weakness or limited mobility in their body, it can be very challenging. So oftentimes we have to enlist the help of family members. Mm. So tell me about this this manual compression thing. Are you actually talking about squeezing out the juice? So, so we call it manual lymph drainage, and it's a very light pressure. Um, the hands are over the lymph pathways, so we know what the lymph pathways are. We go towards the, the exit first, so up by the neck is where all the lymph fluid goes back to the veins and back to the heart. So we start there. We work our way outward on the lymph vessels. Um, Depending on where we are, it might be a little bit deeper. Uh, depending on where we are, it might be a little bit lighter. But we are essentially trying to stimulate the lymphatic system. And also, as we get into the area that has a swelling, we're trying to open and close those, uh, what we call initial capillaries of the lymphatic system, those small little vessels that once the fluid is in there, it's considered to be in the lymphatic system. Before it gets in there, it's not in the lymphatic system. It's, it's sitting out there in, in what's called the interstitial space. So it's going nowhere. So the stimulating the, the lymph system and, and physically moving it into the, um, the lymph vessels is, is what we're, we're trying to do. We also know that the lymphatic system actually has some built-in muscle pumps. So by stimulating that, you can actually increase the flow of the lymphatic system, um, almost like you're increasing the vacuum effect. You're increasing the draw effect from that uh, interstitial space. Huh. So are you, you're saying that then for an arm, you're going from the shoulder out to the hand? Is that So for the arm, we would actually start by the collarbones, and work our way out to the shoulder, the armpit, and out into the extremity. Uh, I will tell you that if uh, there's been a lot of lymph nodes taken out from one armpit, we can do what we call rerouting. So we can ask the fluid to go across the back to the other armpit oh. or across the chest to the other armpit. There's these what we call collateral pathways. They're not really pathways, but... Where the lymph crosses the midline, there's not a lot of valves, very small vessels, so we can encourage it to go. It's not perfect. It's not ideal. But we look at any little bit of fluid that we can get out of the extremity and have go somewhere is what we're looking to do. So when you're doing this, you actually watch the fluid move? I mean, can you actually see bulk fluid moving? No, you can't. No, okay. you can't. But what you can feel, actually, is you can feel a difference in the in the tension of the tissue tension of the arm. So if someone has a lot of fluid that tissue might be firm. And as you do this, you can actually feel it soften up. So indirectly, you do know the fluid is moving. I see. So this is different than, again, the more usual uh, swelling or edema that people know about where, you know, you can push like a Pillsbury Doughboy and make dents. This, this isn't usually like that, right? Correct. And you're not going to be able to monitor this like, uh, like a Doppler you would for venous flow. Although there are some tests on the market where they can inject dye into the lymphatic system and track it now. So you can see that it's moving. Although I will tell you these tests tend to be a little bit painful because <laughs> oh, you see. have to inject into the, the smaller lymphatic vessels. Yeah, that doesn't sound very pleasant. Correct. And uh, <laughs> we used to do a uh, uh, radioactive version of that for staging of things like Hodgkin's disease. That was a very unpopular test indeed. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. If it's anything like that. Yeah, correct. Yeah, wow. So how effective is this treatment um, for patients? Again, I, I've just seen 
people who've kind of thrown up their arms, and some of them have been to lymphedema treaters. Right. And, so I think if you have someone with established lymphedema and you're using complete decongestive therapy, I think you could probably expect realistically about a 60% improvement. Oh, that's pretty good. So I would tell you, though, that the earlier, the better. Uh, there's been some studies done in conjunction with the National Institutes of Health that look at this concept of surveillance, getting a baseline, and then rechecking, retesting. And if they have an increase of volume of 3 to 4%, the, the patients are immediately put into an elastic compression stocking or garment if it's for the arm. They wear that daily for a month, and then when they come back and retest them, they find that that has resolved. Hmm. So really, the earlier the better. And, and I think, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of that has to do with what they're now finding is that there's an inflammatory component to it. And once it's established, it's harder to get that under control. Gotcha. There was also a uh, – there is a physician in Sweden that has looked at the fact that lymph fluid can turn to adipose tissue. Really? Yes. And so, again, once it turns to adipose tissue, your success rate is going to drop. I would think, yeah. And using anti-inflammatory drugs, not useful or – Well, that was uh, – there was uh, Dr. Roxon in, at Stanford University – he, uh, in conjunction, I'm going to back up for just a second. <clears throat> Excuse me. In Japan, for a long time, they were using a certain anti-inflammatory for oncology patients. Mm -hmm. As a side effect, they were finding it was helping with swelling. So Dr. Roxon brought that to the United States as a clinical trial. I think they called it the ultra trial. They recently stopped that. What they were finding, they were using it to see if it reversed established lymphedema. They had some initial success with it, but it was not meeting their expectations. expectations. Uh -huh. So they've stopped it. I think the hope is that they will revisit that because some of their findings were that there might have been some initial benefit for early onset or prevention. Gotcha. Well, this is uh, really fascinating and, and very important for our listeners uh, who are either worried about lymphedema or actually do suffer from lymphedema. Right now, we're going to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about lymphedema and cancer with Lewis Friedman. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, proud partner in personalized medicine developing tailored treatments for cancer patients. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about smoking cessation. There are many obstacles to face when quitting smoking as smoking involves the potent drug nicotine, but it's a very important lifestyle change, especially for patients undergoing cancer treatment. Quitting smoking has been shown to positively impact response to treatments, decrease the likelihood that patients will develop second malignancies and increase rates of survival. Tobacco treatment programs are currently being offered at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers and operate on the principles of the U.S. Public Health Service Clinical Practice Guidelines. All treatment components are evidence-based and therefore all patients are treated with FDA-approved first-line medications for smoking cessation, as well as smoking cessation counseling that stresses appropriate coping skills. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore. I'm joined tonight by my guest, Louis Friedman, and we've been discussing lymphedema and cancer. 
Lou, uh, before the break, uh, you were telling me about a study from Stanford where they were using an anti-inflammatory medication uh, to try to impact uh, established lymphedema, and you said that it wasn't really clear how effective it was. You think there's legs to this in the future or similar approaches? They've been talking pretty highly about this for a while, so in my opinion, yes. Uh, I believe the hope is that they'll regroup and maybe look at a different clientele. I do believe it's very difficult to study prevention. Even though we have some numbers of who will get it, you know, as a group, we don't know that any individual will or will not get lymphedema. So it's very difficult to then say this person didn't, therefore this medicine worked. Right. But I guess um, if it was an, a relatively innocuous intervention that was not likely to be harmful, um, you could certainly take people who are at high risk and, you know, maybe give them the drug or placebo and in a big enough study, you should be able to, right. to, to measure that. I would think that this is a big enough public health problem that the National Institutes of Health would be very eager to fund such a program, I would think, if there was good science behind it. Yeah, it seems like there certainly would be some benefit in regrouping and going that direction. So hopefully they will do that. Yeah. Do you think there's been um, a decrease in the incidence of lymphedema over the years as certainly breast cancer surgery has gotten more conservative in general? Or is that, am I just making that up? No, I do. Uh, um, I think in particular breast cancer, uh, of, of all the groups, I do believe the breast surgeons are very aware of minimally invasive surgery. So it's standard practice now to do the sentinel lymph node biopsy, uh, which for those who don't know is they take one or two lymph nodes, they send that to the lab immediately for what's called a frozen section, and they can determine whether it has cancer or not. If it comes back negative or no cancer, they don't have to take further lymph nodes. And that has been a big uh, benefit to folks for um, not developing lymphedema. Actually, in our practice, we are seeing, I would say, less lymphedema over the years. So we still see um, a lot of musculoskeletal issues related to the surgery and other issues related to systemic treatment. But I actually think the, the prevalence of lymphedema is coming down. Gotcha. And since you're a physical therapist as well as a lymphedema therapist, right. or maybe that's a subset of one or the other, I don't know. Um, do you, uh, I mean, are patients referred to you or self-refer for the lymphedema or do you take a more holistic approach in terms of combining the physical therapy with the treatment of lymphedema? Does that make any sense, what I'm saying? Yeah, it, uh, it does. Yeah. So, so, <laughs> uh, so let, let, me, uh, let me answer. So, so our refer, we do work on referral. And so oftentimes the referral is going to be for a specific issue. So the, the person might um, report to their provider that they're concerned about lymphedema or they're uh, concerned about limited range of motion or pain. When they come to us, though, we look at them holistically. So for, even if they come in for the diagnosis of lymphedema, we're going to look at their ability to move their arm, their strength, any pain that they're having. Um, conversely, if they come in with just a diagnosis of limited range of motion or pain, we're going to look at their lymphedema as well. We're going to go ahead and get a baseline limb volume and also educate them as to, you know, not to get anyone paranoid, but, you know, there is a slight risk of you getting lymphedema. Here's the early signs of lymphedema, so please keep an eye on this. And then if you do see anything develop, then obviously let your medical provider know. It's just a different focus of intervention. 
who do you think provider-wise, I mean, I, it's kind of silly to say who should, but I mean, who do you think is in the best position to be monitoring this? I mean, our patients, so many of them have had curative surgery mm-hmm. uh, or surgery and radiation. And I, I, I don't know really what the practice is. You know, are, are they seeing their surgeon regularly? Is the surgeon kind of responsible for looking at it? Is their radiation oncologist? Is it their uh, GYN or inter- internal medicine primary care provider? Uh, is it on the patient's uh, shoulders to monitor herself or himself? I, yeah, so Steve, that's a very broad question. Well, and, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> um, so <clears throat> I think it, it really depends on where they are in the course of care. So early on, <clears throat> pardon me. So for let's just take an example of uh, uh, someone who's having surgery for breast cancer. Early on, they're going to see the breast surgeon fairly frequently. That will then become less frequent. During the course of that care, they may be seeing their medical oncologist. And again, depending on where they are, they may be seeing that. Even if they're going through the course of chemotherapy, they'll be seeing the medical oncologist as well as the nurses who uh, give the chemotherapy. At some point, they might be seeing radiation oncology. I can tell you here at Yale at Smilo, everyone in that team is aware of lymphedema and knows what to do and is looking for it. What happens generally, well, let me, and again, let back, back up, those high-risk patients, we're starting now to do um, preoperative assessment to get the baseline and setting them up on what we call a surveillance program. So our physical therapy clinic, our rehab clinic may see them, you know, once a month, every three months, every six months, depending on how they're doing. Again, our goal is to try to pick up as early as possible if there's any issues. Mm. The issue, I think, becomes later on. Um, they might be done with their oncology team. We Hopefully during that time, they have been educated enough. Um, some primary care physicians are aware of it. Some are not. And so we, uh, and again, not to talk negatively, but if someone's not aware of it, they don't know. Sure. So um, educating primary care uh, physicians is, is, is a great way to go. We think educating the patient is a great way to go so that they can then say, I have lymphedema or I believe I have lymphedema and therefore I would like you to send me back to either, again, the medical oncologist, the breast surgeon, or if they've been in our system in the rehab team, send us back, send them back so we can remeasure them. Um, is there a period of time after treatment uh, beyond which the risk of lymphedema is gone if the person hasn't developed it, or is it sort of an ongoing risk over time? Uh, well, that's a great question. So the time there is no time frame. I, I can tell you that the majority of people who are going to get lymphedema, will it will happen probably within the first 18 months to three years. Now, after that, the rate of which the rate at which people will get lymphedema is much lower. But there are there's evidence that people can get it 20 years after. Mm. It's just that it's a much lower rate. So, you know, I tell people generally, if you can get through the first three years, your chances are pretty good are, of not getting it are, are pretty good. Uh, but don't ignore it and do keep an eye on it. Gotcha. And are there clinics similar to yours kind of broadly available in many places? Or is the setup that you guys have kind of unique? Um, Yes and no. There's more and more clinics available now. There's more and more therapists that are becoming interested in oncology care and are getting their certification, uh, you know, certified lymphedema therapists. 
most all of them are outpatient clinics. So if you look at Europe, their setup is different. They have a lot of uh, inpatient clinics or where patients can go for this intensive uh, rehabilitation that we talked about earlier, the, com the complex or complete decongestive therapy. Here in the United States, it's mostly set up as an outpatient. So in Europe, they actually check into a spa or a rehab facility and do that for a week or uh, a yeah, couple could days? Be, or? Uh, well, it could be a week, two weeks, three weeks, depending on <clears throat> how long they need to get the, the lymphedema under control. Wow. Well, you know, there's a long history in Europe of like going and taking the waters and you know, I know some of the uh, National Health Services in uh, in Europe, uh, at least until recently, would pay for like a spa week. Right. You know, and it was seen as a medical benefit. Yeah, they it's they not a bad thing, it's, but it's, it's not a bad thing. And, and not as, sure it's cost effective. As far as lymphedema goes, they, but Europe has really been ahead of the curve. They've you know they've probably been doing this more since the 1920s. Whereas it's it's kind of later in this country where we've been focusing on it. I see. I won't ask you why you might think that that was because I think we could get into some political issues, I suppose. But um, once the you've had this uh, congestive decongestive therapy. Yep. Yep. I, does it just stay away, or is there maintenance that's required? So you can look at the complete decongestive therapy in, in two phases. You can look at the intensive phase, which would be all the things we talked about earlier, the, the manual lymph drainage, the compression, exercise, skin care. Doing that to get the maximum reduction you can. Then there's a maintenance phase, which most likely would involve an elastic compression stocking. We're big on self-care. Uh, I'm a big believer in teaching patients exercise, teaching them how to do self-manual lymph drainage, teaching family members to do it if they're able and willing to do it. And then it's a matter of monitoring. So they, it depends on the clinic, it depends on the patient. Getting back in for pe periodic rechecks is important. Elastic compression needs to be re replaced periodically. Generally, we will tell people, you know, every six months, the elasticity in the material is going to degrade. So you want a new compression stocking to give the, the most elasticity you can get. And are people wearing the compression stocking 24-7? So generally speaking, an, an elastic compression is worn during daytime hours. There okay. are folks, there are providers that do advocate for 24 hours a day. I think you can do that as long as someone has no arterial issue. If someone has any arterial compromise, we certainly don't want to have uh, an elastic compression stocking on them, especially when they're sleeping and they're not aware of it. Huh. Okay. So, uh, but but these people are going around with a with a compression sleeve or stocking on. Right. So there's always new fabrics coming out. Uh, this, I believe the the vendors, the the manufacturers are doing a great job of different types of compression product, different types of uh, materials, some that breathe more than others. So there are definitely options. And there are some materials that you can put on. For example, there's a what we call a non-elastic compression wrap that applies with Velcro. Yeah. So that can be put on and taken off a lot easier. That is something that could be used for daytime or nighttime use. So that often gives a client, a patient, a little bit more flexibility. We have to look at whether they're being covered by insurance or not. Whether uh, the person, that's my next question. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, th and that's always a tricky issue, as is that intensive uh, care that we talked about that 
get, trying to get someone uh, in f- four or five days a week to do that oftentimes we find very difficult. You know, whether it's uh, trying to work around their work schedule, co-payments, parking, getting transportation. So we're always trying to adapt and fit the care to the patient as well. Mm-hmm. So insurance doesn't always cover all of this. Some will and some won't. And the best way we do is we'll ask a vendor to do a pre-authorization. So, you know, take the person's insurance information and just check with the insurance to see if it is covered or not. But, but similarly for the visits for your manual compre- decompression, right? The, so the, the visits are generally covered pretty well. Okay. Uh, and there might be some limitation to them as with all insurances, but a lot of that has to do with if if the person is making progress, if we can benefit or demonstrate the benefit and also demonstrate the need. I would say that these days, most insurance companies are very good about covering it. Lewis Friedman is a physical therapist and a certified lymphedema therapist. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.